Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reason for that is really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of super important things, but the most important thing is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. And so we want you to know God. We want you to have a relationship with Him. And if the primary way that He makes Himself known to us is through the Bible, then not having a Bible makes that a disadvantage. And so we want to fix that. And so we can send you home with a cheap paperback Bible. And if you'll take it home and start reading it, uh, I think that's a justifiable way to buy new Bibles. And so um, Romans chapter four, we are several weeks now into a series where we're walking through the book of Romans and then we're calling the series Just and Justifier. Uh, those two J words are titles that God uses for himself uh, in Romans 3 uh, verse 26. Uh, you may not have caught it last week, but JB actually uh, got to cover that little section of scripture where God uses that for himself. And I'll just be real honest, I- I'll confess this morning, I, I was a little jealous because like it was my idea to name the, ty- the series this, and then he gets to preach the part that actually where God calls himself Justin- Justifier. And so, I mean, I kind of wanted to do that one on my own, but you know, JB can have his fun. Um, so over the course of this series so far, we've seen pretty clearly that God is perfectly just. Like that, like I don't think anybody really struggles with that, actually. Yeah, of course God's just. It just the problem is we don't think we see ourselves as the one who deserve his justice, right? We all we all kind of get that God will give to all men exactly what they deserve, no more, no less. And that God in his infinite understanding of not only our actions, but very deep down to the core of us in our very hearts, the darkest corners of our hearts even, the motive that drives those actions. That God who sees all and knows all will dole out his infinite and eternal justice flawlessly. And if God gives to all exactly what they deserve, the next obvious question is real simple, right? What do I deserve? And as we've been learning throughout this series, that answer is not a fun one. <laughs> the answer is wrath. It's, the answer is wrath. God's pure, unadulterated explosion of anger on sin and on sinners. Happy summer, guys. <laughs> perfectly just, perfectly appropriate. Perfectly consistent with his infinite holiness. We are not innocent bystanders in a broken world. The Bible's pretty clear that we broke this place. And neither are we some victims of someone else's treachery. No, we are the traitors, the usurpers of the good, wise creator king. But that's not the end of the story, though, is it? In fact, it's far from the end of the story because as we've also seen throughout this series that the righteous will live by faith, right? That's what we're told in in Romans chapter 1. God is not only just, he is also just a fire. He declares unrighteous people righteous. Now, it's not our ability to be pleasing to God that gains us right standing. You can't curry favor with a king who in Acts 17 tells us that he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, right? Like, what could you possibly offer to God that he needed or wanted? Like, what could you possibly give him that, that would somehow indebt him, indebt yourself to him, right? What could you possibly give him that's not already owed and belongs to him? And so how in the world could God be both consistent with his perfect justice and at the same time show mercy to those who deserve his wrath? 
Because mercy, by definition, is unjust, right? It's getting what you don't deserve. So how can God be both merciful, the justifier, and just? So either A, we have a contradiction of terms here, or B, well, God's special and there's a way to be both, right? And this is where the perfect righteousness of Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross come into the picture, right? God doesn't ignore his divine justice. He doesn't set it down on the sidelines for a second and act like it's not there. No, he, he pours it out in full, just not on you. He pours it out on who? Jesus. The same Jesus that the Bible teaches took your sin and your shame and placed it on his own back. The same Jesus that the Bible teaches joyfully gives us his righteousness to those who belong to him. God's wrath on sin is fully satisfied. And God's mercy on sinners is fully satisfied, just and justifier. So awesome, right? What's our role then? What do we do? Well, the last couple of weeks, Chris and JB stood on the stage and they were tasked with answering the question, well, what about the law? Right? If, if our righteousness isn't enough and God is saving people without our input, what's the law even for? And JB answered the question for us last week, right? To bring knowledge of our sin. That's what he said. To help us see just how desperately we need Jesus to be our Savior. The law shows us what's pleasing to God and just how far short we fall short of that glory. And it's because we have the law that we can now see our need for Jesus. We can't, we can't fulfill the law, but we can see our need, right? And so the question that J.B. left us with last week at the end of his text, uh, found in uh, verse 27 of chapter 3, is what can we boast in? Like, if we can't boast in our law-keeping, if that's not something on the table for us, what can we boast in? And the answer, Paul answers his own question, in Christ. See, no one gets to puff up their chest in Christ's kingdom. Nobody. Look at me! I figured it out! Woohoo! Right? I pulled it off. Aren't I special? Celebrate me! Now, you may never, in fact, no one may ever admit that out loud. But the Bible does teach that that's what's buried down in each and every one of our hearts. We all long, every single one of us, longs to be the master of our own fate. And we all, every single one of us, long to be celebrated and respected and maybe even idolized a little bit. It may come out in different ways for different people, but it's there. And as and the Apostle Paul, he knows what's buried deep down in our hearts. And so he's going to begin to flesh that reality out for us and begin to undo that argument that's buried deep down in us in the beginning of Romans chapter 4. All right? And he's going to do so by giving us a historical example to look at. Probably the best historical example that you could possibly give out of historical examples for grace by faith. But here's the deal. In order to make sense of what he's saying, you first have to answer a very important theological question. You ready for it? How were people in the Old Testament saved? It may seem like an easy question to some, but, but most people actually have a pretty hard time answering that question because they'll beat around the bush a little bit and they'll bring up the sacrificial system and they'll bring up the Ten Commandments and they'll bring up this and they'll bring up that. And eventually, by and large, most people are going to eventually fess up to an answer that sounds a lot like, well, they were obedient to God's law. Right? 
God gave commands, and the good ones, they followed those commands, and everybody else, they got what they deserved. And without, I think, any intentionality, I, th- I think they mean it genuinely and sincerely without really trying to, to rock the boat. I think most people, though, end up setting the God of the Old Testament over and against the God of the New Testament. As if they're somehow disagreeing with each other. As if they have different systems and different worldviews, different things they celebrate, different things that they hate, and different things that please them. Right? And this is where the wildly unbiblical idea comes from in our culture today that Jesus' job is to somehow sweep in and clean up the Father's wrathful mess. Right? We, we'd never say that out loud again either. Maybe nobody in this room would hold to that position, but I, I promise you we could walk out the doors today and find all kinds of people that believe exactly that. That Jesus' job was to come in and say, hey, easy there, Dad. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Calm down there. Let me give it a shot. That his job is to talk a wrathful father down from the cliff. How about you let me give it a try? And this is what far too many people in our world assume about the relationship between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. But the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God, right? The theological word to describe this is immutability. Or that he's immutable. He cannot change. He's unchanging. He doesn't evolve. He doesn't mature. It's not just that he doesn't change. He cannot change. You ever think through this? That God is not capable of changing? Because, listen, what would happen if he were? Where would he go? What would he turn into? If, if God were capable of change, like if it were even possible, he would somehow be less than God already. Less than perfect. Less than infinite. If he were able to grow and expand himself, then it is, he's not there yet. And that's a problem, right? On top of that, there's another issue at play. There's no division within the Trinity. There has never been one moment in all of eternity past or eternity to come that the Father and the Son or the Father and the Spirit or the Son and the Spirit have come to different conclusions as to how to handle a problem. They've never had to huddle up and get their plan together. They've never had a fight or a disparaging word amongst themselves. There's never been conflict and animosity between the one who exists in infinite community. And so the answer to the, well, how are people saved in the Old Testament question is not actually a difficult question. Here's the answer, right? The exact same way they're saved in the New Testament. The exact same way. Whether we're looking backwards or forwards, the object of faith is the same, isn't it? We look back in faith on the finished work of Jesus while the Old Testament saints look do what? They look forward in faith to the promised work of Jesus. Jesus is still the one who brings sacrifice. Jesus is still the one who makes atonement. Jesus is still the one who laid his life down to save those who owed their lives. The object of our faith is the same no matter whether you're looking forward or backwards. 
And I can prove that because Paul in Romans 4.1 gives us the prime Old Testament example of this reality. Romans 4, look at verse 1 with me. What, shall we say that, uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? Okay, so Paul's example. Paul's haymaker, Old Testament example. Father Abraham had many sons. Don't, don't finish that. I wouldn't go in there. Many sons had Father Abraham, right? The patriarch of God's covenant people. Like the one that the rest of the Israelites, the rest of God's covenant people are going to point back to and say, that's the guy that started it all. That's the guy we ought to follow. That's the guy that did it right. All right? If you are a Jewish person in the first century, your boy is Father Abraham. If somebody speaks disparagingly about him, it's going to start a fight. He's your guy. This person is the most important person for a Jewish person ever. God comes to Abram. That's his name before God meets him and changes him. God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and he makes him a massive promise, doesn't he? Those of you who don't know the story yet, God comes to Abram, uh, a pagan idolater we know, all right, from, uh, from uh, the land of Canaan or from, from that area. God calls him out, says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to give you wealth. And I'm also going to make you a great nation. He's just going to blow up his family. He's going to bless him in massive, massive ways. He's going to set him on top of the pedestal amongst his peoples. And years later, after he's fulfilled part of that promise, but not all of that promise, in Genesis 15, God reminds Abraham of the promise that he made. And we're told in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham heard God's promise. He trusted God's promise. And because of that, God called him justified, righteous before him. So there you have it. Abraham was righteous before God because Abraham believed God. So we can just close our Bibles and we can all go home, right? Except for one tiny little problem. This is not the only time in the New Testament that we're told about how Abraham's faith and how Abraham's actions made him justified, made him righteous. Hold your finger in Romans 4 and turn with me to James chapter 2 real quick. It'll be to your right, if you don't know your Bible well. Uh, several books to your right, but they're short books, so don't go too far. Just after Hebrews, if you go to Revelation, you, you went too far. James chapter 2. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing several years after Jesus' death. He's well, he's got some things he needs to discuss. And in James 2, verse 14, we start there. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? Well, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, what's that word? Oh, that's a bad word. Verse 18, but someone will say, uh, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is the one, you, you believe that God is one, you do well. I mean, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Okay, so let's call a timeout right there. All right. So this section of James has often throughout the history of the church been the text that's set over and against what we would call the doctrine of justification or salvation by grace through faith. This is the text that is mentioned in the Council of Trent, the official teaching of the Catholic Church that argues that salvation cannot be by faith alone, that salvation cannot be by grace alone, but also must be accompanied by your works in order to save you. This is the text that the Catholic Church, Catholic Church points to and says, hey, hey, you got to have some works in there. This is the text that is constantly quoted over and over and over again in the early 16th century during the Protestant Reformation by those who disagree theologically. So much so that Martin Luther, the guy that kind of kicked off the Protestant Reformation, finally got so tired of people quoting this text, he's like, I wish I could just throw Jimmy's letter in the fire. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> Over and over and over again, you, you need this, you need this, you need this. And if you think there's some dissonance there, we'll just look at the next line in verse 22 or 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by what? By works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the, scriptures was, uh, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That is a massive sentence for our efforts this morning, huh? So anybody in here think that that sounds like a direct contradiction to what we're talking about? But are there contradictions in the Bible? See, if we see something that we don't understand, that's our cue for what? To put the Bible down and walk away and say we can't trust it? Or is it our cue to press in and figure out what we're missing? The second one, right? It's option B. Yeah, it's option B. So what is that something? What are we missing? Well, in this case, there are actually a couple of somethings. The first one is to ask this question. Who is James writing to? Does anybody know? James is dealing with a church that has made public claims of faith, but has absolutely nothing in their life and actions to back those claims up. He's dealing with spiritual hypocrisy, which I'm sure no one in this room has ever dealt with before, right? Not a bit. So James's mission here is what? It's to, to show that true faith is seen through our works. Without those works, your faith is nothing but words. It's hypocritical, right? Professions of faith are worthless, but possessions of faith are a different story. Possessions of faith are what saves us. But James isn't the only one that said things like this. His half-brother, Jesus, well, he did too in Mark 7, 6. Jesus quoting Isaiah, points to the Pharisees and says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus kind of had the same opinion as James did there. James is clear. Faith without works is dead, he says. And true possessions of faith will naturally result in works that show off that faith. That's how it works. It's the system. But there's a second little thing that needs to be pointed out about James 2 and his Abraham example. He mentions the story of Abraham offering up Isaac to be sacrificed and as the clear example of works accompanying Abraham's faith, right? So, like, even a cursory knowledge of that story would lead you to believe, yeah, that's the one I'd choose too, right? Like, do you remember how the story goes? God has been uh, promised Abraham the son. He finally gives him the son after years and years and years and years. Right? The son is growing up in Abraham's house. He gets to be about 13 and so years of age. Right? So he's had this son of promise for this long by now. And God says, hey, I want you to make a sacrifice. So Abraham goes, yes, sir. Packs up his stuff. Begins marching up the mountain. They've got the sticks, they've got the knife, they've got the fire, they've got the the rope. They don't have the lamb, right? Isaac even notices this reality. Hey, hey hey, Dad, where's the sheep? Don't worry, son, God will provide the sacrifice. They march up the mountain, leaves the servants behind. He binds his son, sets him on the altar, gets ready to drop the knife. The angel goes, wait! It's a clear clear example of a remarkable trust in God, right? In fact, at one point, Abraham even says, listen, uh, even mentions the fact that that God can raise someone from the dead. Like in Abraham's mind, he's going to follow through with this. He's not thinking that a sheep's going to show up caught in the thicket. He trusts that God is big enough to provide him a son. God is also big enough to bring his son back from the dead. It's a remarkable faith. It's a remarkable act of faith. But if you know your Bible well, you know that there's a whole bunch of Abraham's story between the time that God makes the promise to Abraham that he'll have a son and the time that you have a teenage Isaac walking up a mountain. A lot of time. In fact, Maybe 30 to 40 years worth of time. See, the, the example that James gives out is playing out in Genesis 22. The, the example that Paul uses back in Romans of Abraham being counted as righteous for trusting God, that plays out in Genesis 15, 30 to 40 years before that. There's no contradiction in James. Not a bit. Abraham possessed faith and was justified before him. He ever acted on that faith. But make no mistake, he did act on it. When it came time to act on it, the the switch was flipped. And he acted. It wasn't... His his acting on his faith was proof that he possessed it all along. It wasn't proof to God. God didn't need to see that in order to believe that Abraham had faith. God saw the heart, right? But what about us who can't see the heart? So we get to see Abraham's faith play out because of his obedience to God, right? And so James and Paul are actually saying the same thing. It was Abraham's genuine faith that produced his works, not the other way around. All right, back to Romans. Back to Romans. 
So you may not know it, but there's a hypothetical question hanging in the air. All right? And the question is this. If Abraham's works had preceded his faith, they didn't. We just proved they didn't. But let's say for a second that they did. If Abraham's works had preceded his faith, would God owe him something? The answer is yes. And Paul answers that question for us in verse 4. Look at it. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his what? As his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, so JB spoke to this a little bit last week, right? He talked about wages. And wages are a thing that is rightfully earned by your effort, for good or for ill, right? Wages are a thing that's, that's earned by you. And so we normally talk about wages in the positive sense. You may not think of your wages as positive, but they're still in the positive sense. You've done the work, and so now you are owed the wage. You are owed the payment for that work, right? And a failure to pay in that moment is actually illegal. It's a, it's a break of confidence. It's a break of trust. And Paul here says that Abraham's faith it, Paul here says that if Abraham's faith had proceeded his works, all right, um, sorry, Paul here says that Abraham's faith had to precede his works because if it were the other way around, God would be somehow indebted to Abraham. He would owe him justification. He would owe him a declaration of righteousness. Now, if you're hearing that and you're thinking to yourself, well, well that means I just need to like, do one or two really good things and then I can have God under my thumb, right? That's how the system works? But Chris, two weeks ago, covered Romans 3, 10 through 11 that tells us none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So the reality is that those one or two good things, they're not possible without sin. It's not something you can actually pull off. And that's, that's before we can even get to the incredibly sinful reality that this little example involves you trying to be Lord over God and control Him. Good luck with that. Now see, in the same way that Abraham was justified by laying a hold of God's promises by faith, we too are justified through the faith act of Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. Jesus' righteousness is accounted or credited to us as our own. J.B. used a, a big theological term last week, imputation, right? Imputed, it means to transfer. And so for the Christian... We are, and this is important, as righteous as Jesus is before the Father. I'll say that again because it actually is weighty and eternal. eternal. We are as righteous as Jesus is before the Father if we're hanging on to Jesus' righteousness. But Paul's not done. He's actually got another historical example for us in verse 6. Just as David, that's King David, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. And then he quotes David's Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he says, blessed is the man. Some of your translations may say happy or joyful there. I, I don't normally pick on translation issues in this space. There's better... There's spaces that are better suited for that, um, better environments for that, but this one pains me, so I've got to speak to it for a second. The attempt here by those who translate this as happy or joyful, I think 
is really just uh, a, an honest attempt to use a modern word for a modern readership, a modern audience, right? Um, like, blessed is not something we ever really say in our culture. In fact, some of you are legitimately wondering right now if I'm saying it correctly. Is it blessed or blessed? It's, an, it's blessed when it's an adjective. It's blessed when it's a verb. Blessed. So the point alone proves that it's a word that we don't use much in our world, but modern translations to modern readers, that's a good thing. The only problem here is that the word is far, far weightier than happy. And yeah, even far weightier than the word joy. Happiness is something that people feel when they see a puppy. Or in my case, tacos. Same kind of happiness. I I try to translate. It's a momentary emotion. It's a really good emotion, but it's a fleeting emotion. Joy is better because it's not fleeting anymore, but it's still an emotion that's tied to our satisfaction, right? But that's not what's going on in the word blessed. Both the Hebrew in Psalm 32 and the Greek here in Romans 4, uh, they... They translate this word blessed uh, for a reason, right? uh, because both of these languages carry the idea of being undone by favor. Absolutely undone by it. As in, I have no idea how I got here, but I really hope I can stick around for a while. I didn't do anything to deserve this, and I hope they don't figure out and kick me out soon. That's the kind of tone here. The word blessed here carries a deep expression of God's goodness and his kindness and his benevolence towards us. David says, blessed, favored are those whose sins are covered. Not ignored. Not redefined as somehow less serious or less heinous. No, covered. The picture here is that their sin has been forever taken care of. Their, their shame has been removed. Like brand new clothes being given to someone who is forcefully stripped and left naked. Like think through that picture for a second. If you're the victim of some attack, and you're left naked, and you're left exposed, what kind of thank-filled relief explodes out of you if someone were to hand you some new clothes? What's crazy about this thought to me is that the two guys that it's talking about, Abraham and David, both of them were guys that pretty much had everything like you want. Like they had the material. Like David was a king. Abraham was this blessed man in in ancient Canaan. Like both of them had the wealth, but both of them Both of them realized how they stood before God. They were far wealthier than most of the people around them, yet when they realized the position they were in before a holy God, they felt naked, they felt vulnerable, they felt shame. And David says, oh, blessed, favored is the man whose sins are covered. Happiness is way too small a word in that moment. Sometimes it's important what Bible translation you pick. It does matter sometimes. When we stand before the Father clothed in the righteousness of the Son, the perfect righteousness of the Son, He doesn't look upon our sin and our shame. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. 
But it's also important here to remember who Paul's audience is. See, back when we began the series, we pointed out that, that Paul is writing to a church that's steeped in the conflict of Jewish and Gentile relationships. They, they had this weird thing that happened where Jews were expelled out of the city of Rome, and so leadership kind of grew in the church of Gentile background believers. But then after a while, the Jews were allowed back in, and so there's this influx of people who used to run the church with people who are now running the church. And so there's this weird power dynamic going on, and it butts heads at this distinction between Jewish culture and Gentile culture. And so we said back a few weeks ago that Paul was going to have to specifically address this conflict over and over again as he walked through his argument. All right? And so as a Jew, Paul is, knows what the next natural objection would be from a Jewish mind. And so he addresses it head on in verse 9. Look at it. He asks the question, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Okay, so the Jewish mind, all right, in Paul's day and age, the, the audience that Paul is writing to, uh, and we could just as easily like, insert here the legalistic mind, but the Jewish mind in this moment goes, but, 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 Paul, you, you're, you're forgetting that Abraham was circumcised. God gave a command, Abraham was obedient to that command, and so God counted him as obedient. Therefore, Abraham was obedient to the law that had been revealed to him. Case closed. That's what the Jewish mind goes to. And Paul, who knows Abraham's story backwards and inside out, goes, ah, but in what order did they happen? What order did those things play out in? See, we're, we're told that Abraham was counted as righteous, again, in Genesis 15, 6. We talked about that a, a moment ago with James, right? His circumcision, the physical marking on his body showing that he belonged to God's covenant people, that doesn't, account, that doesn't happen for another 20 plus years after that in chapter 17 of Genesis. So are those two things connected? No, not a bit. Why would anyone try to connect them then? Like, doesn't it seem weird that Paul would point out that example, that but, but, but there? Why would anyone bring that up and try to connect those two things? Because when religious people are desperate to justify themselves, the power of the yeah, but is a really strong one, right? Can we be guilty of that? Yeah. It doesn't really matter if we're talking about circumcision or church attendance or the kind of movies you watch, whatever it is. Every single one of us, we're all still desperately hanging on to our attempts to justify ourselves before a holy God. And so in verse 9, in verse 9, the Apostle Paul disarms their arguments before they can even get them out of their mouth. He spells it out for them. Well, well, you see, what had happened was God looked forward in time to the moment that Abraham would be obedient and God called him justified because of that. Mm -hmm, that's how it works. Let's not talk about the fact that Abraham had very heinous sin between chapter 15 and chapter 17. If you don't know the story well, at one point, they, he and his wife, Sarah, they, they get this crazy idea that, well, you know what, maybe God's going to give you a child through someone else. Maybe that's it. And so she offers her servant, Hagar, to be another wife for him. He fathers a child named Ishmael. It's a complete breakdown of faith. The God who promised a child does not need Abraham and Sarah's finagling to get it done. 
Let's just ignore the fact that there's incredibly heinous sin between the time that God made the promise and the time that Abraham finally acted in obedience. No, Abraham, Abraham did absolutely nothing to save himself. It was God's grace before. It was God's grace during. It was God's grace long after. But that does raise another significant question, though. Well, why would God command him to be circumcised at all then? If God didn't need Abraham's circumcision to prove his obedience and to make him clean before him, why would God command that? Like, that seems like a weird, it's a high price to pay, right? If faith and therefore justification came before Abraham's obedience, what was the act of obedience commanded for? God doesn't need it, and so Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. He actually answers his own question in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's an incredibly fun two and a half sentences. So what does Paul say? He says that circumcision is a sign and a seal. That's what's in the convoluted mess there. It's a sign that Abraham belonged to God and was the beneficiary of God's covenant promises. And it was a seal that the promise-keeping God would fulfill every single promise he ever made to him. That's what they were. Not, not only to Abraham, but also to Abraham's offspring. But not offspring in the physical sense, offspring in the spiritual sense. All those who, just like Abraham, walked by faith. That's what Paul is saying here. So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. How do I get in on that? How, how do I become one of the ones that God counts the same way Abraham did and are counted as righteous? That sounds like something I want in on. Well, the answer is you do what Abraham did. You trust in the finished work of Christ. And trust in the promise of God to redeem. Abraham looked forward to the finished work promised of Christ. And we, you and I, look back to the finished work of Christ already accomplished. But forward or backwards, we still look to the promise of holy God to redeem his people. That's what we do. The answer is the exact same way as Abraham. You do that by repenting of sin and coming to Jesus as Lord. Repentance is a pretty churchy word, but it's really not that complicated. It just means to turn away from sin and turn to God. That's what repentance is. Saving faith is laying down your attempts to, to justify yourself and save yourself and clean yourself and trust in Jesus and His finished work instead. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, we want to give you the opportunity to do that today. We want to give you the opportunity to respond in Him in faith. We want to give you the opportunity to, to echo what David experienced and expressed. Blessed, favored is the one whose sins are covered. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front here. If you want somebody to walk you through what that looks like, come see me. If you're here this morning and you're, not, and you're already a follower of Jesus, how should you respond to God's word today? The same way we always do. Lean in. Press in. Repent of sin and press into God. What you have not earned your way into right relationship with Him. 
That, that is not possible. There is nothing inherently in us that deserves anything less than his wrath. Oh, but the righteous shall live by faith. Right? And so the question demanded, and so the question demands to be asked this morning, what, what can you celebrate about his grace today? What can you celebrate about his grace in you and around you and through you? What can you point to this morning and say, I have been favored by God? What can you celebrate today? And furthermore, who is God putting in your pathway this week that desperately needs to experience that same eternity-changing blessing? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. But let's all respond to God's word today. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for being a God who, despite our sin, despite our shortcomings, despite our failures, loves us in an eternally changing way. Thank you for being a God who, even on the days when our best attempts at the law is to hobble together a mess, you are not impressed with our effort. Our effort is stained by sin even. But you knew that and you did something about it long ago. You came yourself. You put on flesh and you dwelt among us. You lived the sinless life that we are never capable of living. You died a sacrificial death in our place. So that those who place their hope and their trust in you and you alone not only have their sin paid for, but are now covered in your righteousness. So God, we, we ask that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? Would you save the people today? For those of us in here who, who do know you, would you remind us that it's not our effort that keeps us near you? It's not our striving. It's not our diligence and our hard work. It is is your grace and your grace alone. So Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.